Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. Hey guys, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast. And today, like every single week, I talk to another inspirational lady. Michelin star David Booley described Dr. Uma Nedu as the world's first triple threat in the food and medicine space. A Harvard-trained psychiatrist, professional chef, graduating with her culinary skills, most coveted award, and a trained nutrition specialist. A nexus of interests have found their niche in nutritional psychiatry. Dr. Nadu founded and directs the first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the United States. She is the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry in Massachusetts General Hospital and director of nutritional psychiatry at MGH Academy while serving on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. She was considered Harvard's most food, mood food expert, has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and is also the author of The Food Mood Connection. In a work, Uma helps her patients foster healthy diets to improve their mental health and conducts research to raise awareness about this emerging area of care. So first and foremost, welcome to the show, Uma. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. As I said, I'm so excited about this because when I started learning more about mental health with the Imperfect the Perfect campaign and, and the correlation to food, I suppose when it does come to mental health, we, we often talk so heavily on emotions and mindset and things we can obviously do to alleviate struggles when it comes to exercise and eating healthier and knowing that the brain and body are connected. It, it's such undoubtedly an important topic to talk and this pandemic has, has only worsened things. But with that being said, before we delve a little bit deeper, would you mind explaining to our audience what nutritional psychiatry is? And please do share your story, obviously. Like, what, what drove you to this line of work? <laughs> Let's start with the definition first, because the story is a little long. <laughs> um, so nutritional psychiatry plan is the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients based on the current evidence um, and scientific research to really improve our mental well-being, or as I like to say, our mental fitness. It doesn't exclude the use of medications or other forms of therapy, all of which are extremely valuable and helpful to people, and medications have saved the lives of many of my patients. However, I really felt from a young age, as you'll soon hear, that people needed more tools in the toolkit to feel emotionally better, especially where mental health is so stigmatized world, uh, worldwide. And if it's one thing COVID has done, it's uncapped. Uh, the extent of um, the silent pandemic, which I do consider to be mental illness. My story starts way back in my childhood. Uh, for whatever reason, my, my parents allowed me to skip out of preschool. I apparently decided I didn't want to go, and I wanted to spend the time with my maternal grandmother, to whom my book is dedicated. And my mom was studying, was, uh, is a double-boarded physician herself, so she was busy studying during the day. So I'd spend time with my grandmother, actually both my grandparents. And from them, I learned things like yoga and meditation. They were extremely cool. Um, my grandmother, you know, would pick fresh vegetables from the garden, and I'd see her cook meals from scratch for the family. 
my mom, uh, my mom's siblings and relatives and cousins, several, there were several physicians, allopathic and a few Ayurvedic practitioners. So there was this interesting conversation, um, the mind-body connection, science, you know, my uncles would stop by for lunch and would be wearing their stethoscope from the hospital. So there's this really fun um, uh, sort of environment that I grew up in. So I brought all of that with me. Uh, interestingly, because there was, there was such a large South Asian family uh, with many cooks in the kitchen, I didn't know how to cook. My mom recognized that I loved science, so she taught me how to bake. So the running joke of the family as I grew older was, you know, well, she'll live on cake, doesn't know how to cook a darn thing. Um, you know, but the, the funny thing is that when I did move away to study, um, the, my, my family recipes and the spice recipes are what I took with me. And then cookie really became my own journey, one that I really treasured because not only did it keep me close to home in that way, um, it became a very creative space like my canvas. You know, at the end of my busy day of studying, I would look forward to what I could conjure up in the kitchen. And um, I realized it was very mindful for me. So I paid attention to that. I continued to enjoy it. And, you know, being a being a poor student, I could only afford public television. And Julia Child, of all people, was on our public television station in Boston. And actually, at times, the show still repeats. And, and I gained a lot of confidence from that, you know, following the recipes and realizing, well, you know, it's okay. You can, you can learn how to cook, you know. Um, so when I decided to go to culinary school, uh, that was actually an ode to Julia Child, when I realized that. Uh, she's most known for her culinary career, but that was her second career. And I thought, well, why not me? Why, why can't I study this? But at the same time, you know, as a uh, studying psychiatry and mental health, I was realizing that we didn't have enough tools because that mind-body connection, that approach that comes to you, that you grow up with, that you learn through yoga, meditation, and sort of this holistic mindset you know, when you arrive at the doors of psychiatry, you realize that it's prescriptions or therapy and, and not much more. And I felt that was incomplete. So I began to ask questions and a patient very early on in my career yelled at me because he thought that I caused him to gain weight because of a prescription I wrote for Prozac. Led to a very big aha moment for me because he also walked in, and I speak about this in the book, with a very large in Boston. We love our Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and he walked in with an American size 20 ounce cup of coffee, which is, most countries is three or four cups, um, you know. And he, um, he was he's saying, you know, well, I gained weight, and it's your fault, and I read about this. And I said, well, uh, you know, we'll call him Bill. And I said, well, tell me what you put in your coffee. And we broke it down, we sat at the computer and he had added a quarter cup of processed creamer just because it, you know, it, it was filled in uh, the large cup and eight teaspoons of sugar. So I said, well, let's just look at this together. And I'm not much of a calorie counter, Glenn, but I, I shared this with him so he understood that these were empty calories he was taking in every single day. And when he understood that, you know, it was almost like a light bulb went off in his head. And that was my aha moment because I realized if you can share and interpret information, it's very powerful. And he, because he felt, oh, I can change this. I, I can do something different, you know. And we, we, you know, continued to have a really good therapeutic relationship. He started to lose weight. He felt better. He's, you know, he needed a low dose of medication in the end. Um, but it was, you know, the, my first sort of uh, almost my first insight that this was powerful information. 
And I really wanted to follow that and 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 tap into what I came into the world with, which is this 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 understanding that care should be holistic and integrated. And I continued that path as I studied. I still did my formal training, but I always had more questions. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to put this together in a clinical service, um, I was supported by department by my department chair to do this. I went ahead, and uh, that that's really how I you know, the very long story of how I came to do what I do, but I feel very fortunate that it's um, come together in that way. And I hope it helps more people. It's amazing. It really is. I just want to touch on something there when you was talking about the guy that walked in with the, the Duncan, the donut, because like the first time I went to the US and like, sometimes we have comfort food and I was looking around and I had a McDonald's and I couldn't believe the size of their McDonald's. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> huge. And I was just like, Wow, imagine having this all the time because it was not small. It was like they call it supersized, but in Australia, the UK, it's not that big. It's not that big. And, you know, no, Glenn, research has been done on the fact that in the US, the dinner plate size has increased over, let's say, the past century or so from, I think it was, I want to say an eight and a half to nine inch dinner plate. um, And now it's a 10 inch dinner plate. So, you know, the larger the plate, you obviously don't want to see an empty plate, right? So we, you know, there's just a way in which psychologically you eat more. And so there are lots of things like that, that I think um, when I have family that visits from overseas, you know, they'll, they'll eat an appetizer because it, it's overwhelming to see the portion sizes. And I think that feeds into, um, you know, a, a, a mindset of abundance, which, which I'm very on board with. But I think when it comes to food, nutritionally, it might be just too much for a given meal. And that's where it becomes a problem. Yeah. And I think on that flip side of that, so one of the main reasons I stemmed in Perfectly Perfect campaign was six, seven years ago, I actually went through body dysmorphia being in the health and fitness industry. So I suppose mm. the correlation between the body and food there, yeah. I was seeing the food as a starving mechanism more so than that overeating. So I suppose when it comes to things like that anxiety, depression, how can we start looking, or if our audience are, especially during the time in pandemic, they're not open to support and everything like that, how can we start looking at triggers of what kind of foods affect us? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think it's uh, some of it starts with what I call one of the pillars of nutritional psychiatry, which I speak about is body intelligence. If, if you feel differently when you eat a certain food, um, and you start to pay attention to that, that's often a good signal for you that either you are craving it, maybe maybe it's a healthy food, maybe it's a good thing. Pay attention to that too. I'm not saying it's always bad. But if you're developing headaches, brain fog, you, you can't get to your afternoon Zoom meetings, you're looking for a candy bar, snack, um, you know, uh, chips or pretzels, and, and you, just, you just can't get through the day. Um, if your hunger signals are mixed up, maybe you're sleeping poorly, poor sleep can actually really disrupt our hunger hormones. Start to pay attention to that. That's a good place to start. The pandemic has been hard in many different ways um, to the extent that, you know, people are calling insomnia, corona insomnia. So start to start to look at yourself, see what's going on. This is a good time to check in with ourselves and start there. Um, if it's a food that's triggering you, if it's, it's a food that you, 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 you're stocking up on, but before the pandemic, you know, you, you didn't have a whole covered of cookies kind of thing. Um, but now that's what you need to get through the day. It's, it's an easy place to, to examine yourself. And I think the power of examining yourself 
is you know where you want to start. It's not someone else telling you, oh, Glenn, you need to do that. You know, it's you, you sort of having that conversation, that check-in with yourself to say, this is where I need to start to start to maybe find my way back to some healthier habits that I used to have or to trying my best to correct this. And of course, speaking to your therapist, speaking to a counselor, speaking to your doctor, all of that becomes important too. But I, I really feel like none of this works if you aren't able to acknowledge it. If you can't see that something is going on, then you're probably not ready. It's not different from someone who says struggling with drugs or alcohol. You know, unless you're able to hear or see that something is changing and you might need some help and say cutting back, it's not going to happen. I think I think we we realize that. So that that's that's sort of my my guidance around it. So what would you say then, as a society on a whole, how can we start educating people better? without, I suppose, that support network at the moment. So what we're seeing through the pandemic is that there's those right. triggers, but wh- where are we going wrong as a si- society? Or through your research, do you think we could be better as mom, dad, brother, sister to those around right. I think it's a, a double-edged sword. I, I think that people are trying their best. And I think that um, marketing of food, food labels, um, the way that food is presented in the U.S., it's like we just said, portion size as well, can be very misleading. Um, I've had a mom uh, proudly tell me, this is pre-COVID, you know, you told me about healthy whole grains and the high fiber. And I, I, she had brought her little daughter with her to the appointment. Her daughter was very little and could accompany her. And she said, I, I've bought her this new whole grain cereal and I'll show you the picture. And right there was a, was a huge huge marketing thing, right? Because here she was reading whole grain, but when you looked at the actual food label, that was the, the, the least of the ingredients. But because of how the food labeling laws work, they, it was perfectly legal to call it that. And here she was giving her, her, her daughter a lot of sugar in that cereal that was actually terribly unhealthy, overcoming the whole grain. So it's, you know, it's understanding the environment. It's understanding what food labels mean. It's, it's finding out more about what we can do to change things. And it's recognizing that you're struggling with something to reach out for help to, to get it in the right place. Um, and, you know, either reach out and, and find a counselor who can guide you through some of this. I think it becomes quite hard when people are just searching information online that's unvetted, because I will have people come into my office virtually even and say, well, I, I think I should give up this because I read this article in X, Y, and Z, or I think I, I, I need to eat more of that or I need more protein, whatever, whatever it might be. And I think that interpreting the information. So, so part of my work is around the work that I do, uh, bringing the research forward, bringing the clinical work forward, but also helping with those diet wars that go on through education webinars and a campaign that I really am working on to increase the education um, in this area, both for consumers, but also practitioners, because a lot of people reach out to me, Glenn, you know, through my website, through social media, wanting to know how can I learn more, how can I do more? And that's one way to start, right, by educating ourselves. And one way to do that is to increase the number of people who have these, uh, this type of awareness. Well, that was the thing. Like, as, as soon as I came across your work, I, I was listening to a couple of interviews with you, and I was like, I need to educate myself more like running this initiative that's gone this big and I know so much and I work with a lot of clinical psychologists and everything like this. And then when it came to the nutritional aspect, I was like, 
wow, this is incredible. Like we need to get this out to more people. Um, and I suppose going from your own story to your practice, then to becoming an author and, and, and bringing that out, can you explain us a little bit more about, about the books? Because what I want to do is obviously get people educated through the podcast, but then deliver people to these books because this is where all the, the knowledge and research is. And one of the things I think is an important aspect is the results that has come from things. So if you can just take us into your book, but then also some of the amazing things that you found through your research. Absolutely. Um, The book came about then because I had been seeing patients for nutritional psychiatry and started this clinical service um, and was able to start to integrate the work with other practitioners who would send me referrals and work with me collaboratively to to figure out if someone needed medication versus both nutritional strategies and, and medication. And um, an article I was blogging a lot for and continue to blog for Harvard Health Publications. And I guess one of those blogs got picked up by a media outlet. And eventually I was, I was, I was called by the Wall Street Journal uh, for an article. And I, I thought, well, I've spoken to media before. I got on the phone call, had this great call, great reporter. And, and that article, unbeknownst to me, went viral. Um, and it had featured my work as one of one of the components along with Chef David Boulay. And um, publishers and agents reached out. Um, so so it was, I was quite in the dark about the, the, the impact of that. So, so I, I, it, for me, it happened in a sort of an odd way. And when that happened, I aligned with the right agent and I recognized that this was a mess, a way, a platform actually, to bring a, a bigger message out into the world, like a podcast is, like a campaign is, and that type of thing. That was where it started. So I had I, I had to think about what is it that I want to share and bringing the research forward was important. You know, there are many, many different silos of people who only do research or only do clinical work who, um, you know, there are media, there are many different outlets, right? But this the, this book, The Food Mood Connection in the US, it's called This Is Your Brain on Food, is meant to be a compendium of the current research and we update it all the time on Instagram and social media because studies on nutritional science come up all the time. Um, and I reviewed upwards of 800 articles and then condensed what I could include in the book to about 550, 553. So that when you read it, you, you can read it in, in, its, in its format, but you can also go to the research and check that out and see where it comes from. See if you agree with it. It's always a conversation. It's not my saying you have to do this. You know, it's me saying, here's, here's some information. Here's the science behind it. This is what I think we should do with it. Um, so I, and I decided that the best way to do that is, although I don't really, I feel like DSM, which is our diagnostic and statistical manual, I feel like it's really lacking. Uh, the way that it's 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 done, because there are many people who have symptoms of ADHD and anxiety, symptoms of PTSD and depression. You know, people don't just fall into a single neat category. That that's just not how life works. And years of clinical practice has taught me that. So, but I fe- but at the same time, I felt it was the structure people know. So breaking it down into different diagnostic categories was the most useful. And it's intended to be that whether you know a friend, a coworker, a family member. Um, that you want to share it with, you know, you may look up the the chapter on anxiety. Someone else may have some obsessive tendencies. It's meant to be the compendium of the go-to, you know, read up about the subject, read up about the individuals I've I've treated, 
And then look at the lists, which are foods to embrace and foods to avoid, start there. And it's it's meant to be something you build up on. And then I have people follow me on Instagram and, and social media, because again, I've I recognized um, during a pandemic, it was one way to share the information. And that's where it's become important. So that's what the book does. And, and, and you know, I, I hope that it continues to be useful to people. Yeah, I, I'm sure it will. Like, I'm just sitting, like, I always embrace what people are saying, like, learn it all the time. And I think it's, I think it's so fascinating that when you talk about that, so when it does come to that research, was there anything that surprised you from, from everything? Because you talk about the foods that people should embrace, so right. if you talk a little bit about just a generalized overview of, of something that maybe even surprised you that people would think, oh, that's healthy and that's really good for my mental fitness. But actually, we got it totally wrong. So when I, I'll share two things. Uh, one is, um, I'll go to that second, but I'll start off with the first. One of the things that really uh, did surprise me when I was looking through a lot of the foods was that. I, being a physician and having studied nutrition, had always associated certain foods with, oh, you know, type 2 diabetes and um, weight gain and, and uh, medical causes. Until I reviewed more closely, even though I had been seeing this clinically and looked at the research connecting the wrong types of refined sugars to um, or I should say just refined sugars and high fructose corn syrup to your actual brain health. Until I reviewed those studies, I didn't realize there was direct evidence linking that. So the stuff that potentially you may be needing to be concerned about because your uncle or your mom or dad have type 2 diabetes, you actually need to be worrying about it for your mental health too. And a simple thing, you know, nitrates, a preservative used in certain processed meats and other foods, simple thing that, you know, someone might think, look, I'm having a healthy turkey uh, sad, turkey deli sandwich or turkey roll up, or whatever it might be. And turkey on its own, perfectly fine if you eat, if you consume meat. Um, healthy whole grain bread, you know, preferably artisanal, you know, uh, with gluten, I really think it's the sauce that becomes important. But let's just look at the, from the turkey right now. Unfortunately, nitrates worsen depression. So that was a surprise because many individuals might think, oh, I'm adding this to my salad. I'm having that in a lettuce wrap, whatever it is. That was one. But from the research perspective, what really impressed me was the emerging microbiome research. Between 2013 and 2017, there are probably 13,000 articles on the gut microbiome because the research has really emerged in the past decade and a half. Um, so one of the things that, uh, I talk about a lot is this particular study that looked at individuals with a major mental illness, schizophrenia, and transplant of their uh, a, a fecal transplant from, from these individuals into germ-free mice. So these mice did not have a microbiome. Uh, they were germ raised to be germ-free. And when the fecal transplant occurred, the mice developed the symptoms consistent with schizophrenia. So what it taught me was the power of the microbiome. And I feel very excited about the research that's ongoing and where that's going to take us in mental health and nutritional psychiatry, because I do think it's the cutting edge of where things are going. Um, and I was just consistently, you know, the, the, my book is based on the gut-brain connection and that helping to understand the food-mood connection. Um, so, that, you know, that, that, those are some interesting things that I kind of came across. 
Wow. It's, it, as I say, like, it's, it's just mind-blowing. And, and, and you've done this research for many years now. But then going back to your story, I suppose when you started it all and you really got into your culinary um, career and learning about it, was it something like a self-reflection thing that you was learning on yourself as well when you was hitting, like, down down times and then up times mm-hmm. like we all experience as, as, as humans. So was it something that you was testing along that way, even before you moved into a, a career, that correlation between them? You know, it's interesting you ask that because I think I was always someone who paid attention to it. Maybe I didn't fully understand what it was that I was examining, but I followed these paths, right? I followed, I followed the different paths that interested me. And I was encouraged by my parents to follow things that I love to do and things that would bring me joy. And I felt very fortunate in that way. But, you know, unexpectedly, because of my own health uh, conditions, I learned, I sort of became my own experiment without intending for that to happen. And I shared this just in the introduction in my book. You know, I things were going well, uh, probably, probably a lot more stressful than I would have liked, but still they were going well on that. Things were coming together, informing uh, my work, my research, when I was unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer. And when I had to sort of examine how food was going to impact me, I realized it was the one thing, you know, I was seeing all of my, my doctors and getting all the advice about medications. And I realized on the morning of my first treatment, the thing I was ignoring was that I wasn't tapping into what I knew the best of how to do for myself, you know, and that's when I really started to um, even up my game in terms of healthy eating, um, you know, improve it even more and make some changes that I do feel not only the psychological mindset, but the actual things that I did, I became my own experiment, but very unintentionally. And my doctors would ask me every single week, you know, what are you eating? What are you doing differently? Because you, you literally are walking in without the side effects that other patients have on these medications. And I felt very fortunate for that. Uh, you know, there's some side effects you can't avoid because of the nature of medications like hair loss and things like that. But the nausea, the, the vomiting, the discomfort and all of that, I, I was very fortunate I had none of that. And I firmly believe it was those mindfulness, the mind-body practice, the mindfulness connection, the, the sense of spirituality I was raised with was also how I was eating. Um, paying attention to what I ate even more. Um, and so that, that, came, that came unexpectedly. But at the same time, um, it, it was a, an amazing lesson for myself. So. And I think you just hit on, upon something that for our audience or anyone like a lot of the times we tend to suppress things and push things to the side until we need to. So I think yes. that's something that's really important for people to understand and, and even have a read of your book, listen to some of your interviews, and even look more at this research. Because I think, like you were saying there, it's not until something happens that we tend to focus and go, oh, now we should be looking at it. I think it's so important to educate ourselves early. Um, yes. I've just got two questions for you, and I like to ask everybody this one, and it's like a favorable towards the campaign. I think through your research, through everything that you've done, you're growing up, like I like to bring it back to basics. As that human being and all the research you've done and people you've met along the way, what does it mean to you to be imperfectly perfect and embrace who you are? 
That's a great question. Um, so, you know, in, in psychiatry and in, in, in psychology and in, in the research, um, people talk about the shadow self and Carl Jung and others brought that forward. And I think that, you know, being a psychiatrist, part of training is being in your own therapy. And I firmly believe it. I tell my trainees that all the time, um, you know, so that you understand the, your own process better. So I think that for me, Imperfectly Perfect is, is about acknowledging that I'm not perfect, that, you know, I, I'm a nutritional psychiatrist. I'm, I'm, um, uh, I was in a podcast recently and the person said, you've been crowned with all these titles. And I, I was really embarrassed. But, but you know, what, however you want to frame it, um, I feel fortunate for where, where my career has gone but I'm most certainly not perfect. And I, I say that on Instagram all the time. I'm, I'm an absolute nightmare on social media. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm doing, but you know, I'm willing to do it because I learned the hard way that people are hungry for this information. And um, I chose that, I, you know, I felt that my book was a way to share that. So for me, it's about trying to be my best self, acknowledging that it's not going to be perfect. And sometimes that's very hard because when you're an ambitious person and, um, you know, if you, you want to achieve different things and you're excited about that, you tend to want to do everything excellently. And it's hard. It's really hard to do that. It's really hard. Very true. And, and you touched upon it there that I just want to bring you back to a little bit that you, you talked about your, your upbringing and just, just realising that we are actually all spiritual beings as well. And we've all got a unique gift. And I yes. think that it, it all goes into nutrition and mental health and mindfulness and going, there is no point in looking at this external of perfection or what you pertain to be because we are all spiritual beings. We're in the That's human right. form, obviously, but we need to embrace that and go, you know what? We've all got a gift, whether that's our voice, whether that's anything. So I think it, it's okay. so funny when I speak to every single person on this podcast and ask that question and everybody's got such a different take on it, but it comes right. down to the same thing. Yes. Embrace I can do it too much. <laughs> Embrace those flaws. <laughs> Um, so last question, because I know you're busy, where can people find out more information about you and where can people find and, and, and grab your book? Thank you. So um, you can find out more information about me and sign up for my newsletter at umanidumd.com, which is my website. Um, we're always putting out information there and you can follow me on all channels of social at dr. U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. -O, and we're always giving you the current research and having good conversations there. Um, and of course, you can find my book at your local bookstore. In Australia, it's called The Food Mood Connection. And in the US, it's called This Is Your Brain on Food. And I would love to hear from you. Contact me on social media. We're always uh, excited to hear from people from all over the world. Well, I will pull the links up to where people can get that from. And we also, when people come onto the campaign, what tends to happen is so many people, because they don't know how to reach out to people initially, they will send some of the nicest messages and goes, that just resonated and that's just changed my life or I've finally mm -hmm. gone to get help that I needed. So mm -hmm. it's making a difference everywhere, like yourself. I just want to say on behalf of me, on behalf of the campaign and for all the people that you've impacted all over the world with your words and your work and, and research, Thank you very much. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Glenn. Those such kind words. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. It's an opportunity for me to share my work. And I thank you for having me. 
you are welcome. So guys, until next time, please remember, keep having these hard conversations because it's the hard conversations that save lives. This episode will be out within the next week and we will put all the links up to where you can find Dr. Uma Nadu. So until next time, guys. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.